I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. We want everybody to have a Bible, so these brothers have come to the front. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. It's our gift to you. Keep that and bring it back with you next week. Exodus chapter 20. I am thankful for a number of things at this church. One of them is the excellent and versatile musicians that we have who minister to us every week. Those that come every week, you notice that there were some moving pieces. That's versatility. So Anthony's gone, Phil fills in to a lead, puts away his fiddle, gets his guitar, does an excellent job. Thank you, Phil. Paul normally plays the mandolin. He's not on the mandolin today. He's doing the bass guitar. And then we have Claire and Carol and Dave as well. And so we're very thankful. Thank you guys for your ministry. When I do uh, premarital counseling, one of the lessons deals with the purpose of marriage, and we focus on three of those. The first is protection. The Bible teaches that marriage is a protection against sexual immorality, since marriage is the only righteous outlet for sexual activity. 1 Corinthians 7 says, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then a second purpose is procreation. God told the first couple, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and to increase in number. And then a third purpose is pleasure. The Bible speaks of refusal to engage in physical intimacy within marriage as in effect stealing from your spouse. Again, 1 Corinthians 7. The husband should fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other. Now I've given these quickly without much explanation because I want you to see one thing out of this. That all three of these are connected to the physical relationship of marriage. Marriage provides protection from sex outside the marital bond. It's the avenue for producing children and it's designed for pleasure for each spouse. So clearly this is an important aspect of marriage. But it can and does get derailed by sin. And so as one of the Ten Commandments, God reminds us of the dangers to marriage if the physical relationship is violated. And that's found in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now remember that God gave, God has given these Ten Commandments because He knows that these areas that He prohibits and puts boundaries around, these are the very areas with which we will have trouble in life as fallen sinful people. He's giving these to us to help us avoid the pain and the difficulty that accompany their violation. So rather than these laws being onerous and simply a matter of God laying down the law, in the words of the title of this series, he's actually laying down the love for us. Today we're going to look at God's loving command to avoid sexual immorality. Let's bow and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we are here Most of us as your children, some may have come into this room without a relationship with you. We hope that this would be the day 
that you move on their hearts and draw them to yourself. Lord, we are here as your people to hear from you. And then, Lord, I pray that each of us is here ready to respond, ready to respond in obedience to what you say in your word so that we can have the joy of the Lord as we live for you and we can reflect your character to the world and back to you as we bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what's being protected in this command is marriage. Adultery assumes marriage. You can actually only technically commit adultery if you're, if, you're, if you're married. Now, we'll see that there are wider applications of that as well, but it assumes marriage. So what's being protected is marriage. And that's why I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out as yet, then I encourage you to take that out. I say, first of all, marriage is sacred. That is, it's set apart, holy. That's what sacred means. And it is so because marriage is God's idea. God performed the first wedding in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And God gave the first bride away. And the Bible then says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. It says a man leaves, but the woman leaves home too. So it's an equal commitment. And when it says in that verse that they leave, that word leave is the Hebrew word translated elsewhere, forsake. So it's a very strong disjunction now between the one relationship and the other. A new home is being established and now you're going to leave and in the words of the King James Version, cleave. Or here it says be united to your wife or your husband. That word for cleave or being united is an extremely strong bond that is not to be broken. And so here's one way to define marriage. Marriage is that lifelong exclusive state in which a man and a woman are wholly committed to live with each other for God. That lifelong exclusive state in which a man and a woman are wholly, completely committed to live with each other but to do so for the God who gave them and gave it. God gave this good gift of marriage, but sin destroys. And Satan is attacking the home and in turn attacking society because marriage is the foundation of the home and the home is the foundation of society. Did you know that there are people, in fact many people, who believe that the family is a huge problem that needs to be eradicated. They see it as an instrument of oppression that keeps people down, especially women. Here are some quotes from leading feminists about the dangers of family. Some of you know the name Gloria Steinem. She said marriage is, quote, an arrangement for one and a half people. That is, the woman becomes just half a person in her view, in a marriage. Betty Friedan, who most credit or perhaps better blame for starting the modern feminist movement with her 1966 book, The Feminine Mystique, she wrote, quote, women who adjust as housewives, who grow up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as the millions who walk to their own death in the concentration camps. 
Another feminist said, quote, the nuclear family must be destroyed. Another, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. Yet another, in order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families and communally raise them. Just two more. Another said, being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The choice to serve and be protected and plan towards being a family maker is a choice that shouldn't be. The heart of radical feminism is to change that. And finally, one last said, quote, we must work to destroy marriage. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and to not live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. Well, so you thought I exaggerate. And this kind of stuff is taught in women's studies programs in colleges across the country. And its radical ideology is shared by other groups seeking radical change, since they all share in common a grievance mentality because they've been oppressed or they believe they've been oppressed and so must destroy what they see as the structures of that oppression. The truth is, studies consistently show that God's program is best because intact marriages produce the most well-rounded, healthy children. They have better physical health. Compared with children in intact married families, children in cohabitating households, that is one parent and their girlfriend or boyfriend, those children are more likely to have a physical or mental health condition and are three times more likely to suffer physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Children that have a father and a mother have better mental health. Children raised without two parents are more likely to be on ADHD medication or are more likely to need professional treatment for emotional or behavioral problems. Poverty is a problem for children without a mom and a dad. Children without these two parents are far more likely to grow up in poverty and have lower rates of upward mobility than children of married parents. Teen pregnancy and crime. Daughters of single mothers are more likely to engage in early sexual behavior and become teen moms. The majority of men, hear this, the majority of men in prison grew up without their fathers. Drugs and alcohol. Children of single parents have significantly higher rates of drug use. In school, children of married parents have fewer learning disabilities. They score higher in reading, higher in verbal and problem-solving skills, better on most academic measures, and better on the majority of social competence measures. And then lastly, future income. One of the longest-running studies on adult development, called the Harvard Grant Study, found that men who had close relationships with their married parents and at least one sibling make 50% more money than their peers who grew up with separated parents or in hostile house environments. It could not be more clear, friends, that marriage and family produce benefits both for the individual and for society, but because marriage is sacred... Because it's God's idea, and because it serves as the foundation of society, and coupled with that, the fact that we live in a sinful, fallen world, then it should come as no surprise that it is a target of satanic assault. Despite all of the clear 
evidence, the clear commands of God, but then the evidence of all the benefits. Then why is this institution under such assault? Friends, I can't say it any other way. It's a satanic attack. Sin destroys. So although marriage is sacred, it is also true, I say in your outline, that marriage must be protected. It's under attack. Therefore, it must be protected. Now, we need to pray and vote in ways designed to bring legal protection to the family. But here I'm referring to protecting our own families by protecting ourselves from the sins that can destroy them. All related to God's command to avoid adultery. So I say in the outline that marriage must be protected a couple of ways. The first, completely protected. Completely protected. And that means, first of all, that it must be protected in action. In the Bible, there are two primary words for sexual sin. There's adultery. You shall not commit adultery. This now seventh command. And then there's another term. In the King James Version, it's the word fornication. In the New International Version that most of you have in front of you, it's just translated as sexual immorality. Now, what's the difference between adultery and fornication, sexual immorality? Adultery is sexual relations with someone other than your spouse. Fornication is sexual sin of all other types. You could simply put it this way, it's sexual activity outside of marriage. So fornication is sexual activity outside of marriage. Adultery is sexual activity outside your marriage. But the linchpin for both is the issue of marriage. The only outlet, righteous outlet for sexual activity that God gives is within marriage. And in any case, sexual activity then is reserved biblically for the bonds of marriage. And so sex before marriage is stealing something that belongs to your and someone else's future spouse. Have you ever considered that? Sex before marriage is stealing something that belongs to your future spouse, belongs to the future spouse of that other person that perhaps you just hooked up with. Here's what the great preacher of the late 19th and early 20th century, G. Campbell Morgan, said in his book on the Ten Commandments about this command against adultery. Its spirit, the spirit of this command, emphatically forbids all unchastity. For if this sense of essential unity in marriage be admitted and it be accepted that the union of lives is always in the plan and government of God, then it at once becomes evident that all unchaste conduct before marriage on the part of a man or woman is a wrong done to the marriage that is to be. And unfaithfulness before our marriage, he says, is as much adultery as unfaithfulness after marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage to your own spouse or future spouse violates God's design. Now, just how evil is this? Just how evil is this idea of adultery? Well, let me go through some passages in the Bible where God talks about adultery 
and the dire consequences of it. Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Leviticus 13, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The book of Proverbs, a wisdom book in your Bible, asks, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? And then it goes on to say, A man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. You're playing with fire, it's saying. In your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral. In Hebrews 13, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It appears God takes this very seriously, right? To put it mildly. Now, if marriage is so important that it must be protected, then if you've done even a cursory reading through your Bible, perhaps this question arises to you now or has in the past. What about all the polygamy you see in the Bible? All the men with multiple wives and concubines. Concubines are women who lived with them, but they had a lower status than their wives. The answer to that is, though it happened, God did not approve of it ever. God's design has always been one man, one woman for one lifetime. God did not approve of it. And we see his disapproval both directly and indirectly. God's disapproval is directly shown in Genesis chapter 2 that we saw earlier. That one man and one woman become one flesh in marriage. And then God's disapproval is seen indirectly in all of the problems, the troubles, the tensions that polygamy and concubinage bring into the relationship. Sometimes, friends, when we read Scripture, we're to see God's perspective on what's happening in how the narrative plays out. Two-thirds of the first part of your Bible, two-thirds of the Old Testament are written in narrative. God's telling the story of what happened. And very often, you're to see God's perspective on what's happening in how things go. And so we see God's perspective in how the narrative plays out. Rather than saying directly how he sees it, he allows the story to reveal his position. So, for example, the bitterness between Sarah and Hagar appears to be God's silent disapproval on the arrangement. Or the bitterness of Rachel toward Leah, her sister. Or the rivalry within David's family. David had many, many wives. And worse, of course, was Solomon, who frankly had a harem. And the rivalry... That went on there and that led to his downfall because he had to provide for the religion of these various wives in some cases. And these women were always angling for their offspring to get some kind of hand up in the government. And in all of this, we're to see God's consistent disapproval. So marriage must be protected. It must be protected in action. I say as well, it must be protected in thought. In thought. You see, God does not just condemn the act. He condemns and warns about what precedes the act. And what precedes the act 
are always thoughts. So marriage must be protected in thought. You remember Jesus famously said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the lustful thought, according to our Lord, is as culpable as the act because if the time and place were right, the action would take place. Just like we saw last week, you shall not murder. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, but if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. And I said last week, that's because if the time and the place presented itself in the midst of that burning anger, then the act would follow. As one preacher says, the wish or the desire proves capacity for the deed. And it's to be condemned equally with the act. Now, it's certainly true that the effects of an act and the effects of a thought are not the same. But both the thought and the act are to be condemned equally because the desire proves the capacity for the deed. I quoted G. Campbell Morgan earlier. He says again that this command forbids, quote, all of the arts and blandishments resorted to by the seducer, all of the amorous looks, motions, modes of dress, and verbal insinuations which go to provoke the passions and make way for criminal indulgence. All writing, reading, publishing, vending, or circulating unclean, obscene books, all exposing or lustfully contemplating indecent pictures or statues, all impure books, songs, paintings, etc., which lend to in, tend to inflame and to botch the mind are against this law, he says. And he was saying all of this long before the advent of cable TV and the Internet. So let me just stop here. To say, do you all see why I prayed the way I did? The family is under attack. Satan desires to sift you and me as wheat. He desires to do the same with your family. He seeks to destroy it. Be warned, friends, in no uncertain terms. We live in a very different time. I'm 56. And in my lifetime, just my lifetime, things have shifted dramatically. Cable, internet, access to things that you had to go to a seedy part of town to get a hold of. Now you have easy access on your smartphone. Very different time, very dangerous time. You know, and some of us just come into it, some of you younger folks particularly, you come into it, you're born into it. It's the air you breathe, it's the water you in effect swim in, it feels fine. I remember a time, some of you will remember this, when the media was actually on your side in raising children. When... TV producers actually put stuff on TV that was designed to be wholesome for families. And it couldn't be put on TV if it wasn't. If you can believe that, it couldn't be on if it wasn't wholesome. 
I remember when the 11 o'clock news would come on. Remember specifically WJBK, Channel 2, one of the three channels we had. And then if you had UHF, you had Channel 50 and Channel 20. Channel 2 would start at 11 o'clock with their news program, and it would start this way. It's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Some of you remember that? Are your children out running around, marauding? No. They, do you know where they are? Can you imagine? The TV actually went off <laughs> at about 1 a.m. Went off. It wasn't on 24-7. There was nothing to watch between 1 and like 6 a.m. Because the ex- expectation was, you know, you're in bed. Unless you work midnights or something. They played the national anthem at 1 a.m., signed off, and that was that. Different world. And the TV producers are no longer helping you with your family, are they? Instead, they're being used as instruments of Satan to harm your family, to seduce your family. Sometimes people say, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch Or I just window shop. I'd never actually buy. Friends, when you begin to tolerate impure thoughts in the mind, it's not long until you begin to justify the acts of the body. The mind is our most powerful sex organ. So the seventh commandment doesn't just require us to avoid the actual physical act of immorality. It requires us to control our minds and our thoughts For this command includes any kind of impurity even in our minds. No one has ever committed adultery with it just happening spontaneously. It's the result of a long process of impure thinking. And then the opportunity presents itself. And now you're ripe for the picking. The Heidelberg Catechism. That's a Protestant catechism. Some of you may have not known that there is such a thing. A Protestant catechism. You thought that was all Catholic stuff. It's not. They're actually Baptist catechisms. A catechism is simply a way to teach in question and answer format. And so there's a question and then the answer is given. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, the year 1563, question 109 asks... Does God forbid nothing more than adultery and such gross sins in this seventh commandment? And the answer given is, since both body and soul are a temple of the Holy Spirit, it is his will that we keep both pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may excite another person to them. So marriage must be protected by our thoughts. And how seriously should we take this? When Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery already. When he said that, the next passage is this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus says, radical amputation. 
Now, nobody physically did that that I know of. Nobody actually took their eye out. Jesus is saying, you take this so seriously that you separate yourself radically from those things that you are allowing to enter into your mind. So we must discipline our desires. We must keep watch over our senses. That's why Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Proverbs says famously, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Friends, this is just good old-fashioned self-discipline. You must keep guard over your desires and your thoughts. That means then setting up safeguards. You know, maybe if you if you can't maybe you shouldn't have cable TV if you can't handle it. Consider having an accountability partner with some software on your computer and on your phone. I recommend something called Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes. You put it on your computer. You put it on your phone. You then establish an accountability partner who gets an email about the stuff that you've been watching the last week so that you can have a frank discussion about that. Be judicious in your contact with members of the opposite sex other than your spouse. I had a, a policy when I worked in the workaday world as a computer programmer that I would avoid at all costs. I had the Mike Pence rule. You guys hear about this? Mike Pence caught a lot of flack a few months ago because he said, I don't meet alone with women. The vice president said that. Well, I did the same thing. Now, there are times where it can't be avoided. When those times could and it couldn't be avoided, I told my wife, I have to have this meeting. It's going to last for an hour or two. Here's where it's going to be. Those kinds of things. Jesus said this, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Guard your heart. Marriage must be protected in action. It must be protected in thought. This word that's translated fornication in the King James, sexual immorality in the NIV, it's the Greek word porneia. Porneia. We get pornography from it. So what's happened is, friends, we now have ways to commit adultery with no one else around, in effect, through pornography. So marriage must be protected in action, in thought, thirdly, I say in your outline, and in attitude. And here I'm talking about our attitude toward marriage and our spouses. The way we talk to each other should take into consideration that this person, my spouse, is a gift from God. We should avoid attitudes that make marriage seem like a prison term. Married with children has become a demographic designation that's often used as a term of pity. Some years ago on the local sports station, they had a segment called Spousal Arousal. And they got great chuckles, all the men who called in and all of that, got great chuckles out of things that their wives did that were really stupid and irritating. And marriage just seems like a horrible institution. You know, friends, when you're dating, 
when you're courting someone. You establish spiritual, if you're Christian, spiritual and emotional. And then later, after marriage, physical bonds with that person. So it goes in that order. Emotional, spiritual, physical. That's the way it should go. When you first meet the person, when you're courting and dating the person before marriage, spiritual, emotional, physical. But it goes in reverse order when you're on your way out. You first lose the spiritual. You first lose your connection with God. And then you lose your connection emotionally with your spouse. And then finally, physically unite with someone else. Men, in our marriages, we need to understand that our physical relationship is an outgrowth of our entire relationship. A wife who does not have an ongoing relationship with her husband in which he values her and cares for her so that the physical relationship is an expression of that ends up feeling used. Intimacy or the lack thereof is an indication of whether the marriage is healthy. Now, this is so important that in November we are encouraging our married couples to go to something called the Weekend to Remember Marriage Retreat. It's going to be at the Marriott at the Renaissance Center. I sent an email about that this past Friday. We'll continue to do that Weekend to Remember in November. So marriage must be completely protected in action, in thought, in attitude, and it must be, in your outline, intentionally protected. We intentionally protect it by considering the three partners in any relationship. First, the partner in heaven. When one commits adultery, he brings a third-party intruder into the marriage. Actually, he's bringing a fourth party. Because every marriage already has three partners to begin with. There's the couple and there's God. And God is always the key factor in any relationship, marital or otherwise. And God is the chief partner, and and most people know that. Even if they live their lives as practical atheists, they still want to invite God to the wedding, if not the marriage. And so have you ever considered that most people want to get married in a church or at least by a minister? And not just to have a place or a person. The truth is there are other options, and some take them, but most want to be married in a church by a minister. Why is that? Because they know that this is an institution from God. But we need to consider the implications of the fact that marriage is God's idea, and he's the central partner. It means our marriage is ultimately for his sake, not ours. It puts the lie to many of the excuses we use for divorce. God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Who told you that? The truth is, God might, hear this, God might want you to be unhappy at least for a period of time. Did he want Job to be unhappy for a period of time? Indeed, there are plenty of people in the Bible who went unhappy for long periods of time. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, we say. Or we've just grown apart. Or he or she just doesn't treat me right. Or we've lost that love and feeling. 
And the fact that God is the central partner also means that he sees when our hearts and our eyes drift from our spouse. Listen, guys and gals, whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, however you're doing it, you're never alone when you do that. You are never alone when you do that. Proverbs says the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And he's not watching us from a distance. As that great theologian, Bette Midler, falsely claimed. And hoped. Proverbs 5 says, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all his paths. God is there and he is watching in the closed off rooms, in the darkness, in the light, and in the dark recesses of our minds. God is watching. Be constantly aware that you are not on your own. So consider the partner in heaven. Secondly, consider the partner in your home. Just a few comments to both wives and husbands. Wives, let me encourage you to make your home a place where your husband wants to come to. And where he's comfortable to be. If a man has a a bad home to come to, it's not an excuse for adultery. So don't misunderstand me. But you haven't made life any easier, dear sister, if he doesn't want to be there. And from a human standpoint, one can understand why someone would work overtime or... In the words of those great theologians, super tramp, take the long way home. Or have affairs with their careers and their hobbies, or perhaps with another person. And then husbands, make your wife feel loved and accepted. Do acts of love towards her. Don't complain about your wife if you're not willing to love your wife. If you're not willing to do acts of Loving kindness toward her. One pastor gave this advice to a man with marital problems. He said, I can solve your problem in 30 days. Every day, do 10 things that you would do if you were head over heels in love with your spouse. After 30 days, it had a profound impact on that couple's relationship. And then thirdly, consider the partner in heaven, in your home, and in the mirror. And consider what this says about you, what this does to you. And then deal with it before the Lord God. I mean, friends, have you ever considered that every adulterer, defined broadly in the ways that we've talked about here, every adulterer is also a liar? Because you've broken your vow? And every adulterer is also a thief? Because he or she has taken what belongs to another spouse, either current or future? Know your own frailty. Cultivate the spiritual disciplines as a means to safeguard yourself. Now, in conclusion, many of you have heard the statistic that says that the divorce rate among Christians is no different from society in general. Have you all heard that? I've heard that, but I've never seen any substantiation of it. And not to put too fine a point on it, but that's baloney. Doctrinally, that cannot, biblically, that cannot be correct. Are we saying that Christ makes no difference in the family? Cannot be true. And is not true. And experience teaches us that it's not correct either. I've been in church circles my whole life, as have some of you. I'm familiar with dozens of churches personally, probably hundreds indirectly. I don't know of a single 
Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church in which the divorce rate is even as high as 10%. And in society at large, it's 50%. When I perform marriage ceremonies, I often quote a statistic from Family Life Ministries that the divorce rate among couples who pray and read the Bible together is less than 1%. Now, why is that? It's not because the simple act of praying or reading the Bible in itself keeps the marriage together. Rather, those things represent a deeper commitment on the part of the couple to their God, to one another, and to their vows. And so it is trite but true, the family that prays together. Right? So, what if adultery has happened in your life? Or you're in the clutches of its modern equivalents. Giving yourself to online romances via social media or you're engrossed in pornography. Run to Jesus for restoration, friend. If you're his child, you remain so. But your relationship is strained with something between you and your Lord. Run to him and take action. Remove the temptations completely. Radical amputation. Get an accountability partner for your online time. I mentioned covenant eyes. Take what your church is offering to you to help you with this. Men, next month, September 22nd, men's breakfast at 9 a.m. It's going to be about this topic. We're going to have a guest speaker, Nate Richards, certified to help men in this particular area of struggle. The following week, At 9 o'clock and 10 Saturdays thereafter, we will be having what's called the Conquer series, which is about this very thing. Now, if you have a problem with this, if this has has entrapped you and enslaved you, you say, if I show up to that series, everybody's going to know, it's going to out me. No, because I'm encouraging those who don't have that enslavement now to come so that you won't in the future. And so if you show up at that thing, it may be because you are in its clutches, but it may be because you're simply trying to prevent that. Either way, men take advantage of that. Here's your take-home truth. We must guard the sanctity of marriage in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and in our actions. And we need God's help to do it. Let's bow before him. Father, we are sobered by the realities of our fallen sinful hearts and how they are so easily drawn away from you. And Lord, help us to make no mistake that when our hearts are drawn away from those that you have brought into our lives to love, they've first been drawn away from you. It's first a sin against you. And only secondly against someone else. So help us to see it. For the heinous betrayal that it is. A betrayal of you. And then a betrayal of our spouse. And then having seen that danger. And abhorring it. Help us to run from it. And run to you. Oh Lord I pray. Particularly for my brothers. That they will see the seriousness. Our young men. Our teenagers. Our married men. All of us. Help us to see the dangers. You've given them to us in no uncertain terms. Help us to obey you, O Lord. And grant us the ability to do it. 
Use the tools that your church is providing in the lives of your men. Strengthen our homes so that we can withstand the onslaught that is coming against it, so that we can be united in bringing glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.